Welcome to Rusk, insights on rehabilitation medicine, a top podcast featuring interviews with thought leaders in the field of PM and R from Rusk Rehabilitation at NYU Langone Medical Center and other prominent rehab medicine institutions. Your host for these interviews is Dr. Tom Elwood. He will take you behind the scenes to look at what is transpiring in the exciting world of rehabilitation research and clinical services through the eyes of those involved in making dynamic breakthroughs in healthcare. So listen, learn, and enjoy. Hello, and welcome to another episode in the Rusk Rehabilitation podcast series at NYU Langone Health. These interviews make it possible to learn about developments in the field of rehabilitation aimed at improving the lives of patients. I am honored to have as today's guest, Dr. Julie Silver, who is Associate Chairperson of the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at Harvard Medical School and Massachusetts General, Brigham and Women's, and Spalding Rehabilitation Hospitals. Podcast listeners have an opportunity to hear many interviews with exceptionally knowledgeable and interesting participants. Each segment is in the 15 to 20 minute range, apart from the introduction of speakers. Occasionally, a pair of longer recordings is featured by individuals who participated in Grand Rounds presentations at the Rusk Institute of Rehabilitation at NYU Langone Health. This podcast by Dr. Silver is on the topic of how to lead high-impact strategic initiatives in healthcare. Her presentation occurred at Rusk Rehabilitation's 5th Annual Research Symposium on May 28, 2019 in New York City. She was honored on that occasion by being presented with the Rusk Award for Leadership and Innovation in Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. Dr. Silver has been an integral part of developing the new Spalding Research Institute from conception to launch. Her research and clinical work have focused on improving gaps in the delivery of healthcare services, particularly cancer rehabilitation. She has published many scientific reports and is well known for her groundbreaking work on impairment-driven cancer rehabilitation. She is the co-founder and co-director of the Cancer Rehabilitation Group for the American Congress Rehabilitation Medicine, a research-focused interdisciplinary professional society. As a healthcare leader, Dr. Silver also is committed to supporting the healthcare workforce, and she's a researcher and nationally recognized expert on inclusion, diversity, and equity. She's published multiple reports on bibliometrics, educating researchers about both conventional and alternative metrics aimed at supporting both research dissemination and faculty promotion. Her work has been featured in several major print and broadcast media throughout the United States. In part one of this broadcast, Dr. Silver addressed the topic of how to lead high-impact strategic initiatives in healthcare from the perspective of the three traditional hats worn in academic medicine, medical education, clinician, and researcher. It's great to be here, and I'm going to be talking about um, high-impact strategic initiatives. And as I talk about this, uh, first of all, I don't have any disclosures. I'm going to talk about it from the perspective of the traditional three hats that people in academic medicine wear, medical education, clinician, and researcher. So those are the conventional ones. 
but I also have these other hats that I wear. And so as I go through this presentation, you're going to see me kind of flipping my hats. Now, um, you just heard that I was a, a startup company owner, and when you found a startup company, you're always flipping hats because you're the CEO, the CMO, the CIO, the CFO, the COO, whatever, oh, that's it. So you're constantly flipping your hats and you're going to see that. I started getting interested in innovation for as long as I can remember, but one thing that really kind of got me going was I was sitting in my office and I was seeing a lot of polio survivors. And they would come from all over. In fact, my mom had polio, her dad had polio, and her brother had polio. So I was, um, I grew up with polio. And as people would come in and they would, they would talk to me about their symptoms and, and what happened to them, many of them had never told their polio story. They had never, um, they never told about how they were uh, taken away by police and put in the hospital and their parents weren't allowed to visit them. They were never, they were, had never uh, told the stories of how they were spanked in the hospital for not eating their hospital food um, or abused or all of these things that happened to them. It was really, really heartbreaking. And I kept rushing them through things and asking about their symptoms. Now, well, do you have any weakness? Do you have cold intolerance? Do you have whatever? And they wanted to talk about what happened, whatever, 30, 40, 50 years ago. And so as I heard these stories, I thought to myself, my goodness, someone has to record these stories. Someone has to really pay attention to this and we have to, we have to, record, we have to remember what actually happened during these epidemics from the perspective of the people who actually lived it. And that's what oral history is. Oral history tries to level the playing field of history so that the people who lived it get to tell their story too. And that's super important. So as I did that, I said, well, why don't I just start an oral history project? I'll just put on a hat called oral historian. Now, I'm not actually an oral historian, but I certainly learned a lot about oral history. And what happened is I decided, you know, I'm now recording all these stories, and I put together a book on, on uh, the stories, and I thought to myself, well, this should really be a, a museum exhibit. And it is the 50th anniversary of the sock vaccine coming up, so maybe I'll just pitch this idea to a museum. And if I'm going to pitch it, um, when, you're, when you uh, do a, a startup company, they always say, go big or go home, right? So I decided to go big. I said, I'm going big, I'm going right to the Smithsonian. And the National Museum of American History um, had a museum exhibit that had my oral histories. This was my idea um, to have this exhibit. I, I was the brainchild of this entire exhibit that ran for a couple of years and millions of people went through it from all over the world. So I started thinking, wow, that's really cool. Like I'm just starting my career and um, you know, already I'm, I'm really interested in innovation and so on. So you heard that I had written and edited about 100 books. Well, part of that is because I was the editor of the books program at Harvard Medical School for five years. And so I was in charge of all the books that came out officially from Harvard Medical School that carried its imprimatur. And as I started thinking about these different ideas, I, I could literally go to anyone in the faculty and, and pitch an idea to them, hey, do you want to write about something or whatever? And there were tons of super smart people that I could go to. And I started thinking about this whole thing of mental health. And I kept thinking, you know, people are, are talking about it like it's, it's not a spectrum, like it's a box. You're anxious or you're not, you're depressed or you're not. 
And we really know from the literature that it's a spectrum. And as you move from normal and you start shifting right, as when you get way right, you have a DSM diagnosis. But what if we were able to recognize the spectrum earlier and we started to intervene? Maybe we wouldn't need so many medications. Maybe we could shift people left quicker um, without so many medications. So I came up with this idea of doing a series of books, and I called it The Almost Effect. Now, you're going to see me give things a name. Over and over, you're going to see me give things a name, because when you can name them, you can talk about them, and people start to understand them. So I said, all right, I've got these different psychiatrists and, and psychologists at Harvard Medical School, and I have had them sign NPAs, non-disclosure agreements, because this was a big idea, and I didn't want it to leak out. I um, got a publisher on board who paid uh, the Harvard Medical School and the author's money to do this, and we did the almost effect. And so I did a number of books, and this is, these are some of them, which sort of brought out this idea of subclinical symptoms. So this was really, really interesting. And you will see all over mental health sites now and so on, this idea about the almost effect. And again, that idea really came from me, from naming it. Not that I, not that the literature wasn't there, but that I brought this idea out and said, let's give it a name, let's talk about it, let's give people a way to understand it. So when you innovate, here's the thing that you'll learn, is that every single person has lots of great ideas. And the problem is, is that that's what they think works and that's not what works. Because when you bring a bunch of smart people together, you're gonna, I mean, in this room alone, there's at least a thousand great ideas in everybody's head that are going around. I mean, at least a thousand. They won't go anywhere, though, unless you put a strategy around. That's the hard part. You have to develop that innovation engine that takes a great idea and is able to see it through. And then once you have it, it gets easier again to talk about it and share information about it. But the hard part is not the great idea. So with our faculty, they'll come to me all the time and they'll say, Dr. Silver, I have a great idea. I'm like, I am quite sure you do. I'm sure you have a fabulous idea. Absolutely. But the people that I really want to spend a lot of time with are the ones that are willing to do that middle piece and put it in the engine and do the hard work. So. I'll give you an example of when I became associate chair of our department. Um, one of the things that I started thinking about for our department was, gee, we have all these centers and institutes, and we don't really have them on our website. And I went around and I asked people, I said, uh, how many centers and institutes do we have? And people said, I'm not really sure. I said, well, does anyone know how many are doing research? No, we're not really sure. Some of them are. Well, are they making money or losing money? Depends on who you talk to. So I literally said to myself, my goodness, this is a project. So again, I named my projects. So this is Project Institute and Center Enhancement, Project ICE. Now people at my institution, I'm not gonna lie to you, they, they think it's kind of weird I named my projects, they do. But everybody started talking about it saying, oh, Dr. Silver, she's doing Project ICE. You should talk to her, she has a list of the centers and institutes. I went around and I had a spreadsheet and so on, and I looked at all this data coming out of our centers and institutes. The first thing I did, frankly, was I made a list because no one had a list of all the centers and institutes. And then I started looking at all the, the data and so on, and I realized 
more than half of them, well over half of them, two out of three or so, had no business plan at all. 100% predicted future growth. And 77% had no growth the previous year. Now just think about those statistics. How is that strategy gonna work? Like that, that can't work, right? So I realized that we needed a lot more training and a lot more strategy to, to have certain goals and, and to make sure that those goals worked. So I'm giving you a little background about how I started getting, you know, putting these things together with regard to innovation and research and strategy and so on. And as I go forward now in this talk, I want you to pay attention to a few tools I'm using. One of them is dissemination and implementation science. Now you've probably heard about this a little bit. The way I like to think about it and explain it to people is sort of like this. We know that it takes approximately from discovery of a new drug or treatment about 17 years to reach clinical practice. That's a really long time. And so this field kind of grew out of that called dissemination and implementation science. And what I think of it as people that kind of live up here and they look down at all of us and they see what we're doing. They measure what we're doing. So we're doing the research and they're measuring how fast we're disseminating the research and how quickly we're implementing the research. So they're studying, they're researching our research. It's so interesting. So I thought to myself, well, if I could turn myself into an oral historian, I could probably turn myself into a dissemination and implementation scientist, at least partially. I'm not saying that I'm the world's leading expert in dissemination and implementation science, but I certainly could learn a lot more about it and start doing some research on that. So you're going to see some research I've been doing on that. To, to do that, though, you really need to understand bibliometrics. Bibliometrics really are ways that we measure the impact of research. So you have to understand that. And then I started thinking, okay, well, once we disseminate things, especially um, I, I started applying this to my research on equity and diversity and inclusion, I thought to myself, there's this whole body of literature in the social sciences realm called social norms research. And I thought, what if I started using those and started sharing with people, hey, this is the way we really ought to be. Don't you want to be more like this? And started using social norms, and that is, that is really helpful. So the classic social norms research, or a thing that you probably know about, is when you get your electric bill, and they show you compared to like your neighbors, and they say, don't you want to be like those efficient neighbors that are not using too much electricity? Finally, you have to understand about innovation. So most great ideas, most companies, they fail in the chasm. The chasm is really you have these people that are innovating and then you have these early adopters. And most people are super excited, like innovators, they're like, oh, I'm so excited because uh, these early adopters are really, really, they, they love what I'm doing, they think it's great. What they don't realize is that the place where the ideas fail isn't when those early adopters love your idea or love your business or love your service or product, it's when you have to get it to the early majority. And the late majority is even harder. And the laggards, they're never going to adopt it, so just don't worry about them. So let's take the Kindle, for example. The Kindle <laughs> is, is uh, an e-book, basically, when it came out, right? And people said, no, 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 I'm, not, I'm only gonna read on paper. Now, 
keep in mind, we have evolved from reading on scrolls and papyrus, right? We have evolved. I mean, there have been other innovations regarding how we read. So a lot of people said, I'm not going to read anything except paper. Those are probably going to be the laggards, some of them anyway. But what happened is Amazon was really smart. And as soon as people who were early adopters bought a Kindle, if there was a problem, they would literally send you a new Kindle before you even sent your old Kindle back. So you were never without a working ebook. And then what happened is people started to say, oh, you know, this is really working. And the early adopters came on. And now there's a lot of late um, adopters or late majority with Kindles. So this is my secret formula. I'm happy to share my formula. I'm happy to, to guide you through it. It does take time to really learn how to do all of these things, but it is a true roadmap to getting things done. You always have to start with why. You can't lead. This, is, this talk and this award is about leadership and innovation. You cannot lead people unless they know why. They will not go with you. They will not do what you need them to do or want them to do. They have to know why and they have to believe in the why. Tipping points really matter. This actually is the very hardest part of anything that I work on, which is to find the tipping point, the thing that will really make a difference. And people say, aha, I get it. I understand why we're doing this now. And this very particular tipping point is going to change a whole lot of things. Leverage your network. This work has been done by Julie Badalana and colleagues at Harvard Business School. Understanding organizational change management, the adoption of technology, and how networks work are really important and they're very similar ideas. So this is the change process that I was just talking about a few minutes ago. But this is a network, so it's similar. Here's the thing. Let's say, we, you first have to know the difference between non-divergent and divergent change, okay? So non-divergent change is let's make a small change and let's try to convince people that, that this will be reasonable. So a small change would be this. Next year, instead of having this, this uh, conference in this auditorium, we're going to move it across town to another venue. Now I know that some people that's going to be inconvenient for some of you, but we're going to do it, we're going to make it much nicer, etc. Now, how many people would be willing to do that? You. Okay, so some. All right, how many people really don't want to do that? They want it less nice, they want it here. Okay, okay, that's fine. It, which is very nice here. <laughs> but I'm just, I'm just giving you an example. So, all right, so we have people that are on both sides. Let's negotiate on this. How about this? How about if this year we have it here, next year we have it at this other venue that's a little nicer but harder to get to, and then we'll move it back here for the following year and we'll just flip back and forth. How many people would be okay with that? We compromised on that. Okay. So that's a non-divergent change. Now, let's do this. This is divergent change. So let's say that, and this is actually, um, it, it's an interesting example because women and minorities actually make less um, than we know that from research, but let's say everyone's paid equally. And we are gonna do a big change and we're gonna say, no, 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 we're gonna pay women less, okay? So 
How many people agree that we should just pay, it'd be okay to pay women less? How about we'll pay them the same this year and next year, we'll pay them a little less? How many? Okay, how about if we pay them just 10% less? 5%, 2%. Okay, so I'm not giving any buy-in. That's divergent change, right? When someone has to win and someone has to lose, that's divergent change. When there's no room to negotiate, when you're just not gonna negotiate, that's divergent change, that's big change. So you have to know what kind of change, and that matters about resistance. So what if we had somebody who was willing to say, I don't want to pay women equally, I, I just don't want to do that, an influential resistor. We wouldn't keep them close. What if we had them say, I really don't want to go across town. We'd say, you know, come on, let, you could negotiate with them, talk to them, you'd still keep them close because it's not a divergent change. So knowing how big the change is and whether you can compromise helps you in terms of your negotiations and so on. And when you want divergent change, it helps to have a bridging network. It helps to be working with different groups and leveraging different groups so that you can bring about big change. Thank you again for joining us. You can learn more about Rusk at nyulangone.org slash Rusk. Also, be sure to follow this podcast on Twitter at Rusk Podcast.